The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin for Cruise Capital Corp. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange is CUZ and in the U.S. as BKTPF. That's BKTPF. Consider this, if you will. The dynamic for cobalt is very similar to what you've seen in lithium. The price for lithium has gone from $6,000 to a high of close to $25,000 in the last year and a half. That would be the equivalent of gold actually being at $6,000 right now in the next year. Cruise Capital saw an opportunity in cobalt six months ago, being one of the first companies in Nevada the day that Pure Energy announced its deal with Tesla, Cruz actually announced its own lithium deal. They were one of the first movers there, and four months later, Lithium X came along. When you become a lithium company, you look at the dynamics of why lithium prices are moving the way they have. Primarily, it's been the electric car industry that has been the driver for that exponential gain in lithium. What the management of Cruise did then was look at what were the main drivers within the battery space within those cars. You had graphite, which has already had more or less a bigger pop, with many companies looking for graphite and not many finding it. Nickel is a much bigger industry and the company couldn't really get in at the early stages. And then cobalt. Looking at the cobalt dynamic, Really, there's only two or three companies in North America that are cobalt-specific companies of which they've spent a great deal of money on those projects and for the most part are still not at a point where they can really be economic. The cobalt numbers need to be higher to make those companies and the dynamics work correctly. When they were doing this, cobalt was $10. They need about $20 to be in a good comfort level to go into production. Cruz was looking at the dynamics of cobalt itself, and there's a niche there. There were few within the sector. What Cruz did was hire a geological firm as they only wanted to find North American and Australian cobalt projects. They came back a month later with numerous cobalt showings. They garnered a database of close to 200 different cobalt projects, of which they graded from one to four. They came back with a small amount of number one categories, and instead of getting one project, they captured eight projects for the company right out of the gate. By having eight projects, all with the same highest grade cobalt numbers in North America, it puts Cruz at a distinct advantage to all other cobalt companies that we expect will follow them, as they did in lithium in Nevada in the future. 
Cruise Capital is also looking to split the stock forward so that they can come down to a price range that is in line with what people like to invest in on the junior side. They have many different dynamics, but again, the Cobalt dynamic is what really appealed to Cruise Capital because looking at the car space, for example, you're going to see in North America a growing demand. What you're seeing in China is an exploding demand. What you're seeing in Europe, in countries such as the Netherlands and Sweden, a lot of countries want to ban cars on the road by 20 2025, 2030, by 2040 or 2045 in Germany, for instance. What you're going to see and what the company believes is going to happen in China, for example, is that you have a pollution issue there. You have massive infrastructure already in place by having 80 cities the size of Chicago basically already built up. And you have a government that when they decide to mandate that there will be no more gas cars, they don't roll it out like they do in the rest of the world. If they decide tomorrow that there are no more gas cars. There will be no more gas cars tomorrow. When you have that infrastructure already in place, you know, you read on some of the reports that we've seen, right now there's about 16,000 plug-in posts in China. By 2020, just a few years away, they want to have 4.9 million posts. When you look at that kind of exponential growth at what they want to do and what the dynamics of the battery industry could entail and the fact that there's been no new production of cobalt, the fact that 60% of your production of cobalt is in one African country, the DRC, which is mineral rich, but politically really, really negative. You also have many outside factors, such as Washington Post articles, Amnesty International articles, talking about what they consider blood cobalt. You've seen videos of seven-year-old kids coming out of holes in the ground in the Congo to pull cobalt out, of which the majority of that is being sold to the Chinese who really don't care too much about what they're doing as far as buying it. What you've now seen is Samsung, Apple, Hitachi, LG, producing every major battery for your phone, your laptops, your iPads, and your cars. These companies are having to explain where their cobalt is coming from. If you're tracing it back to the DRC, there could be some issues. If you, for example, have any kind of ethical mutual funds that own Apple, and they trace any of their cobalt in their batteries back to children pulling it out of holes, that's going to be a negative. When you look at all the backstory as to why cobalt is going to go, we really think that you're going to see an exponential move. You can see it recently now with the price of cobalt, which is basically making year highs almost every day now. We expect that that's really going to move from here. What we saw is a funnel type scenario, and when I talk about a funnel type scenario, it's a scenario where you have almost no stocks and you have a ton of interest in the sector. You're seeing it in the marijuana stocks in the last four months. You saw it in uranium stocks eight years ago. You saw it in oil sand stocks 12 years ago where you had a very finite number of companies and a ton of interest in it. For the past six weeks, Cruise Capital has been on a pretty significant roadshow, really promoting cobalt almost more than the company itself. What they've done being in New Orleans, Toronto, Vancouver, Germany, Switzerland, all these different places. They've met with probably between three and 400 people, of which these are all high net worth individuals or significant mutual fund managers, newsletter writers, etc. Most, when they become fully aware of the Cobalt story, are in agreement that Cobalt is probably going to have a huge year in 2017. The part that is fascinating is that as far as being involved in a company is concerned is the fact that not one of those same people may own a Cobalt stock. When you think about that, 
dynamic, you can see the exponential growth potentially here. Cruise Capital believes that they are really at the forefront in the sector. The company is fully funded. They have all of their projects all in place. They're about to start operation on multiple projects, and they have a pretty significant marketing budget that they're going to be deploying through Europe and the U.S., as well as their home country in Canada, to really get the story out. They already joint ventured out a couple of the projects, so they're able to raise money through other company stock because they gave Cruise Capital their shares for the properties so that they can use them as currency to use to further their projects or to tell the story. When you look at everything, you know, when you put it all out there on the line, Cruise Capital strongly believes zinc and cobalt are going to be the two biggest upticks in 2017, and they believe the dynamics for cobalt are setting themselves up for an exponential type move. When you see those exponential type moves, and if you go back eight years when there was an issue in the DRC with the government, cobalt prices spiked up to $53. The few cobalt companies were all between five and ten baggers over that exact same period. That's what they see happening again, and that's why they're in the sector, and that's why you should consider looking at Cruise Capital Corporation as a potential investment opportunity. Cruise Capital trades on the TSX Venture Exchange as CUZ and in the U.S. as BKTPF. That's BKTPF. Cruise Capital Corp. is a paid sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a recent conversation with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium Limited, trading in the U.S. under the symbol CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. Canalaska is an exploration company in Canada's Athabasca Basin, known for some of the highest grades of uranium in the world with 18 projects of their own, holding one of the largest land positions in the region, comprising of up to 1,800 square miles. Canalaska shares a joint venture with the major uranium producer Cameco. Additionally, the company has staked approximately 75 diamond targets in the Athabasca, bringing in De Beers, the world's largest diamond producer, as a partner. Peter, welcome back to the program. It's excellent to be back here. I do appreciate the opportunity to give you uh, an update this week. Speaking of updates, how would you say that the recent results of the American presidential election might influence the price of uranium, in that it's a clean energy, and perhaps the new administration may not be as focused on this issue as much as would be hoped, perhaps? The build-out is going ahead with nuclear. 36 plants that are under permitting in the U.S. may now find that they have a quicker route to finance. We've still got five plants, one just completed and four more underway in the U.S. And China is doing this incredible build-out of nuclear power plants. It's clean and it's cheap. And I think cheap is probably the number one thing out there. Cheap electricity will give you a huge manufacturing advantage, a huge advantage for employment. How would you compare nuclear power to wind or solar? It's cheaper, isn't it? It's generally held to be around 7 to 10 cents a kilowatt hour for uh, electricity produced at a nuclear power plant. And we see prices variously above 20 cents a kilowatt hour to up to, I've seen, 50 cents a kilowatt hour for uh, wind and solar. Now, they are all coming down, but it's going to be a long time before they could ever get anywhere near uh, that 7 or 8 cents. It's a little bit cheaper to have gas at the moment, but as cycles fluctuate, gas can soar. And coal is not too different to that. However, we've got the greenhouse gases with coal. Rick Rule recently advocated uranium as the next easy money. What do you think that means? There's a, a 
strong predicted demand that's uh, maybe out one or two years. Previously, when we heard about the demand back in 2004, a lot of people bought uranium before the suppliers were started to scoop it up. And so we saw a, a massive shift from $7 a pound up to $140 a pound before settling at $70, $75 a pound. Right now, the uranium price is $18 a pound. It's right on the production cost, the cash cost for Cameco, who are the lowest cost producer around. Many other producers around the world produce uranium, but if they were to sell at those prices, they'd go bankrupt. Cameco, surprisingly, share price has bottomed, seems to be, and it's moved significantly over the last week. They uh, supply, uh, you know, about 25% of the world's uranium. They're certainly not selling at $18.75, which is the current spot price, but they're getting prices much closer to $50 a pound. And so there's fundamental disconnect, huge demand down the pipeline. Nobody can operate reasonably under this $50 a pound and, and make a significant money in a mining operation. The prediction is that the price will increase violently. If you look at Cantor Exerald's uh, latest report, they're still predicting that it will increase violently. So Rick is saying buy low and uh, you get the opportunity to sell high. Buy low while the uranium price is down. There's a market that doesn't appreciate the build out uh, around the world. There's lots of opportunities for investors. So the share price potentially is considerably low, and when the price of uranium moves upward, you would think that the share price would also head northward, all things considered. Prior to Fukushima, we were trading at $1.65. We had a main board listing on the Toronto Stock Exchange. We're trading at $0.42 cents at the moment. So we're about one quarter of the price we were trading. And in this time, we've been able to do a number of things to strengthen the company. We still maintain a very low uh, share float of uh, 27 million shares, but we've done $39 million worth of deals this year, including a very significant deal with Cameco Corporation, right adjacent to where their main MacArthur River mine is operating and their brand new discovery of Fox Lake. So we're trading for a quarter of our previous value and we're in a market where we expect significant changes in the uranium price over the next year to 18 months. We expect to see speculative demand coming in there to pick up uranium because of the impending uh, shortages. And we see the major supplier of uranium from Canada getting a nice lift in its share price. And generally, whenever Cameco's uh, share price starts to move, we start to move as well, principally because we have a large amount of land in the Athabasca Basin where these very high-grade uranium targets are. We have joint venture partners, and those partners are spending money for our, to help us develop our projects to get new discoveries. Why is the Athabasca so important, and how high are the grades? Cameco reports uh, grades of 100 times the average world uranium grade. Their mine at uh, MacArthur River is running 24% uranium, and you'd be very hard-pressed to find any uranium mines around the world running over 1%, and the average is generally about 0.1%. So 0.1% is a world average, maybe a 20 million pound deposit. MacArthur River is 400 million pounds at 25% uranium. Orders of magnitude larger in grade and also in tonnage of uranium. This mine was only discovered in 1988, right in the middle of the lowest of the low prices for uranium. Uranium was trading about $7 a pound then. And it was a follow-up on a previous discovery. The very first high-grade discovery was made in 1981. So it took until 2004 for the market to show any interest in uranium, and that's when we got involved. So we were sitting with a $7 uranium price that was slowly drifting up maybe to $9. Suddenly, people were realizing the amount of uranium required just for the new build-out of Chinese reactors, and the price took off to $140 a pound. These high-grade deposits in the Athabasca 
can supply that uranium that is needed for these new build-outs. When you look at something that is 100 times richer than anything else in the world, the opportunity to make uh, supreme profits are uh, immense. It's right on our doorstep, and we can follow up on this with new discoveries and give our shareholders a real opportunity to participate in this nuclear growth. The name of your company is Canalaska Uranium, but as you were exploring for uranium, you stumbled upon diamond targets leading up to your joint venture with De Beers. That's correct. Our focus uh, for the last 10 years has been uranium in the Athabasca. Very high-grade deposits uh, are there, and there are new discoveries being made, and we believe that uh, we have the opportunity on our ground. But as we reviewed some geophysical work that was done by the Saskatchewan government, we recognized targets that look like kimberlite pipes, and in March of this year, we did a deal with De Beers Corporation for them to expand up to $20 million on these targets, and the market is certainly been uh, interested in this because the richest mines in the world are generally either diamond mines uh, or the uh, very high-grade uranium mines of the Athabasca. So we're covered on both fronts, right in the same area. It's not a small area. It's uh, perhaps uh, 500 miles across by 300 miles north-south. Within this area, we have multiple uranium targets and uh, now it looks like a significant diamond target. Your share price is somewhere around 33 cents U.S. Tell us again about your share structure. We have 27 million shares issued in this company, and we have uh, about a 12 to $13 million corporate value. We've been in this situation for uh, five years now, ever since Fukushima. We've resisted issuing shares. Our share price was $1.65. Canadian has come down to just on $0.40 cents Canadian at the moment, about $0.33 cents US. We see the upside in that our company is well-structured for discovery and well-structured for our shareholders to make a large capital gain. If we're uh, trading in in this range now, we are, as I said, 12 to $13 million value, but we're looking for targets that are in the billions of dollars, and uh, right now, Cameco is spending more than our total capitalization on a target that uh, is adjacent to one of their recent discoveries. So that is our focus, to give a significant capital gain to our shareholders from our uranium discovery. We have 18 projects in the Athabasca. We think we could make more than one discovery, and certainly by bringing along the uh, De Beers uh, uh, looking for diamonds on here, we have another uh, string to our bow, and, and I think that bodes well for our shareholders in the future. Peter, thanks again for joining me today in the program. I look forward to speaking with you again in the very near future. Thanks very much, Alice. I do appreciate it. I've been speaking with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium, trading in the U.S. as CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV at the New Orleans Investment Conference. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Look for Canalaska's logo on our homepage and click through to their website. And listen to the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes and on your TuneIn Radio app. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a discussion with Brent Cook, an independent exploration analyst and geologist with 30 years of experience in both property economics and geology evaluations. He's a newsletter writer and the editor of WellRespectedExplorationInsights.com. I recently caught up with Brent at the New Orleans Investment Conference. Brent, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Always glad to see you wherever we're at. A lot has happened in the last year. There was a lot of excitement about a year ago related to whether or not silver or gold was going to take off. It has done so, relatively speaking. There have been some lateral moves, and where we're sitting now at the end of October, beginning of November 2016, there's been some money raised for some near producers and producing companies. How's it being deployed? Let's talk about that. Part of my talk today is on that subject, and I think what's happened is we've seen about $4.4 billion raised at financings of greater than $10 million. 
but 83% of that has gone to the top mining companies, royalty companies, and that. And most of that is actually going into either paying back debt, working capital, or new acquisitions. I look at exploration on their exploration side. There's very little money being raised for exploration. If you look at financings of under $10 million, there's been about 657 individual financings, and you'd assume this is for exploration, but if you look at the average raise has been about a million, and the median is about half a million. So most of this money being raised in these small financings is just to keep the company alive. Not much of it's going into exploration. When do you think that's going to turn around so it's still not a great place for exploration companies at this point then? I don't see why or if it's going to turn around for any time soon, which to me is a very positive. Discoveries are way down. I mean, we're producing 90 million ounces a year from mines. We're discovering last year, we discovered 40 million ounces. So that deficit, that 50 million ounce deficit is not being made up. So the very few companies that are out there exploring and making legitimate discoveries are going to become increasingly valuable. And in my view, that's the place to be and it bodes really well for the future for those select few companies. Well, this is very interesting news to frame it that way. Essentially, that means that gold in general is very, very undervalued. And that's not just a supposition. That's probably close to being a fact. On a production basis, yes. I mean, all the gold that's ever been produced almost is out there somewhere and potentially available. You know, there's no shortage of physical gold. But for the mining companies, there's a severe shortage of new gold to produce, and that's the shortage that I'm interested in. Where do you see progress in that area? It's going to be slow. I mean, there are very few companies out there making discoveries. It's hard to make a discovery. It's gotten harder over the past 20 years for a variety of reasons that I actually I go into. We've got a report we've released on Exploration Insights that anyone can get if they just send us an email on fatal flaws. But basically... It's become a lot harder to find new deposits because we're looking deeper, we're looking blind, the metallurgy gets more difficult, the politics, the social situation, and the environmental hurdles are all higher as well. So it's it's getting harder to find these deposits at the time when we need them the most. So is there any money available through the majors and the uh, medium-sized companies to hit on some of these juniors to give up some of their properties, or the properties are just not there? There's some money, but not a lot. What's happened over the past five years as the gold price declined is the major mining companies, they cut their exploration budgets down to almost nothing. They cut their development as much as they could. They cut their sustaining capital as much as they could to stay profitable. And now they're faced with basically no exploration budgets or nothing new in the pipeline. So again, they are going to have to start looking at these junior companies, and that's where to watch uh, what they're doing. It would seem to me that given what we just heard from you that any number of economic factors, and we can speculate probably for another hour, at some point could drive potentially another parabolic rise like the kind we saw back in 2011. I think so. I think, you know, we're going to see pretty flat metal prices through the end of this year until the Fed raises rates. I suspect they will do that. But thereafter, none of the problems that we're facing now that everybody's talking about in terms of debt and global economics and political situations, none of that's changing. And I think that's going to come back into the forefront next year. So I think right now, up until the end of the year, is the time to be acquiring these exploration companies that are actually onto something that could be 
economic. What's your view on PGMs, copper, uh, industrial uses for silver? Do you see that going way up next year, 2017, 2018? Those are bets on the global economy getting better. I don't see that happening in any large degree. I think copper is range-bound. PGMs are probably range-bound. Silver, it moves with gold uh, in that respect. But for me, probably 80, 75% of my investment is in gold. I like gold. I like everything about it, including the geology. So you've had a good year this last year, I'm going to guess. We've had a great year. In fact, I brought on a, a new analyst, Joe Mazumdar, in November when we started really getting invested in the sector. And Joe's been fantastic. He compliments what I do. And, and to be honest, he's smarted me in a lot of respects. So uh, our newsletter has gotten a lot better. Fantastic. Are there any parts of the world right now that look compelling to you compared to what we, we spoke about a few years ago? I just came out of Scandinavia. I think Sweden, Norway, Finland are great places to be looking. They've been underexplored for a long time. West Africa still holds potential. Argentina looks good. A lot of the same places, parts of Canada. You mentioned Scandinavian Canada, where infrastructure issues uh, are non-existent. They're fantastic there, as a matter of fact. Why is West Africa still attractive? It hasn't been explored to the detail extent that West Australia has been, and the geology is very similar. So there are a lot of projects out there that haven't seen drilling, haven't been drilled. You've just got surface geochem anomalies, artisanal workings laying out there that companies are picking up and starting to figure out. So there's still potential there. Brent Cook, ExplorationInsights.com. Thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Thanks. I've been speaking with Brent Cook of ExplorationInsights.com at the New Orleans Investment Conference. Listen to the segment again on our website, EllisMartinReport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Michael Berry at the Silver Gold Summit in San Francisco. In the 1980s, Michael served as a professor of investments at the Colgate Darden Graduate School of Business Administration at the University of Virginia. He published a book, Managing Investments, a Case Approach. He has managed small and mid-cap value portfolios for Heartland Advisors and Kemper Scudder. Dr. Berry's well-respected publication, Morning Notes, reviews emerging technological, geopolitical, and economic trends, and he is a founder of the Discovery Investing Scoreboard. Mike, welcome back to the program. You and I have been in this business a a very long time, and we're being asked, what do we think is going on here? What's the election have to do with the markets? What's been happening with gold in the last few days? Does silver have a, a life separate from gold due to its industrial applications? My answers to those questions probably would be the same as yours. I don't know, but I think I have an idea. As you know, Alice, twice a year I present at the Federal Reserve, and I've been doing that for 14 or 15 years now. I was there on September the 12th. My thesis at the time was the Federal Reserve has lost control. And actually, they began to believe that they had lost control. They started talking about doing really silly things, like doing away with cash and uh, helicopter drops and things that are not in the standard repertoire. But anyways, I presented to a large group of people at the Fed. They said, well, well, what's happening? At that time, we had two candidates, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and they weren't talking about issues. They were talking about each other. And so it was hard to tell what might happen. So the big surprise of surprises, I have to say I was surprised, was that Trump pulled off a stunning upset based upon either clairvoyance or luck. I don't know which. But things have changed. You know, Tuesday night we saw gold go to a $38 
uptick at the point at which it looked like Trump might win Florida or did win Florida. And then the next day, the markets reacted and said, hey, we love this guy. And instead of the stock market being down seven or 900 points, it was up 327 points or whatever it was. And at the same time, gold went from being 13, I don't know what it was, 28, down now to 1225 off $100. The dollar strength. And this all on the notion that President-elect Trump can pull off a wizardry that will be difficult to pull off. I mean, I've looked at what's happening with growth for the last, since 2008, we've had less than 2% per annum growth in GDP in this country. All of a sudden, along comes the wizard and we're going to have a fiscal spending spree. I don't know how we're going to do that because we're already significantly in debt. But if we are, we've seen, now seen copper go up a lot. I think silver is, is a preferred asset. That's what I'm doing here at this uh, mining conference now is looking at silver and looking at a property that we have. Now, I think that you and I both more than likely predicted a year ago that after the election that base metals, metals like uh, copper, even zinc, and then some of the clean energy metals like lithium and cobalt, and even silver, not being a base metal, but an industrial metal, would probably right after the election go up based on the fact that we knew both candidates would be interested in doing something serious about the infrastructure needs in this country. Is that not correct? Yeah, I think so. You know, one of the things we're seeing in gold now, as as opposed to the base metals in silver, and I separate silver now. The, the gold-silver ratio means little to me at all now. Some people still think about it in that sense. Gold reacts negatively to the dollar, and all of a sudden the dollar is hugely stronger relative. I think the euro is trading at 107, $1.07 today, euros to the dollar. So they're almost at parity. The Canadian dollar is 0.737, roughly 74 cents to the American dollar. So we're seeing gold take it on the chin, but silver held up pretty well. It came off a bit. And of course, copper is hyperbolic now. So obviously the markets are anticipating something over a period of 24 hours that turned completely upside down. That's what gold does. In fact, the level of, of 12, 12.50 in that area, where it's at today is probably... It's still suppressed from from years and years of suppression, but probably a, a good place for it to be. And, and any wide swings up or down, or you know, that's a speculative end of the market, which was confused by the election, probably. And um, anything could trigger that again, right? Any any geopolitical news can 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 trigger gold again, but it would trigger it in a way. If there was something parabolic that sent it up, it would there'd be something equally as parabolic to to bring it right down again. Uh, but if you if you would agree that the rest of the metals are all going to do very well during the next couple of years, why wouldn't gold just take itself up just just because? Yeah, I think it will. Actually, I presented at the uh, at a Quebec meeting in early October, and I said with what the Fed now has to do to re-establish itself. Of course, Donald Trump. President Trump, President-elect Trump, is going to have something to say about the Fed. But they've tried quantitative easing, they've tried zero interest rates, they've tried a lot of different things, and they've not been able to generate growth. And really, they haven't been able to generate inflation to the degree they want. They're still worried about deflation. I think we're still in in, um, never-never land with respect to what might happen. Many entities have either consciously or, or by rote attempted to smack the dollar down over the last 10 years and none of it's worked dollar is is i don't know how the dollar could get taken out so really what has to happen is gold has to decouple from the dollar as far as it being a story don't you think yeah, I do think so, and I think that's probably... Well, we, we do know that, that in Asia, the especially the Chinese, are piling up as much gold as they can pile up. 
um, in to back their currency as a as a major currency. They don't have a bond market yet that that can support that. Silver, I think, is a, is a desired asset in this asset class in the sense that it it is decoupling from gold. It, it is it is strategic. It is industrial, and for the last six or seven years. There has been no exploration in the silver market. And that's why I'm here at this meeting right now, because we have a silver property. There's been no exploration. Uh, there's been high grading of silver uh, properties. And consequently, sooner or later, we're going to run de- we are running deficits in silver production versus use now. So silver is one of those strange metals that has a lot of different opportunities. It's always been that. And at this event last year, at the uh, Silver Summit last year, I made a decision when the price of silver was just at around $14 to go in pretty strongly with physical silver, yeah. and I'm not disappointed. Had I done that with gold, uh, I wouldn't have done as well. Yeah. Well, again, silver bottomed around $12 or something like that. It, it uh, Tuesday night, the night of the election, I think it topped at around 19 Now it's backed off to 17 or wherever it is now. Um, so when you look at some of the uses of silver and the deficits that we've been running in silver, you can't re- you can't reclaim silver like you can reclaim gold. Gold, every ounce of gold that's ever been mined is. So we're excited about what we're doing in the silver market, and um, we have a private company that we're we're um, we're funding in Mexico that has a hundred million ounces of silver now. Well, that's a pretty significant number, Dr. Barry. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one, and we're going we're gonna to increase that over time as well. Do you think there's a possibility that uh, this private company is going to uh, go public, or would you be better off keeping it private? Good question. Um, given what has happened to public companies over the last five or six years, I'm very happy that we're... But we will... We will it's, right now, it's an LLC. Um, we're going to be raising $5 million for it privately, but we will eventually, probably sooner rather than later, convert it into a C-Corp structure and make it public. When the market seems to want that, we'll, we'll oblige. Or at least part of it. Why would you put the whole thing into a public, uh, public vessel? That's right. We have three properties in it and in, in Mexico, and so I think part of it, part of it is probably the, na- the answer. I mean, as an investor, you, you would sort of have to pick the basket that has the most options for you because nothing's certain. That's, that's for sure. That's true. And, and now, I think um, we put $17 million into this property. We have 110 million ounces of silver and 117,000 ounces of gold. We think we can double that, and um, in this drilling program, we're going to do that. Now, you're an expert on industrial metals and clean energy metals, lithium, cobalt, graphite, all of that. I'm really, I'm not surprised to see you focused on silver, but... Uh, uh, You've gone from that realm into really being excited about silver right now. What do you think about lithium, cobalt, graphite, uh, I don't know, uh, tantalum? I'm just... (laughs) Well, you know, um, actually, my son Chris probably is the expert. I I sort of call him and ask him what he thinks, to be honest. But if, if forecasts hold true about electric cars and electrification of the economy, we're going to need a lot of lithium. We're going to need a new mine every every year for the next 10 years. And so right now it's still a small market, and there's a lot of froth in the market, but I think the good lithium assets will pay off over time. Graphite, um, graphite is a different ball of wax, so to speak, and um, I think it's a little overpriced here, to be honest. I think 
battery technology is, a, is actually moving us a little out of the mining sector into the technology is really an important place to be now. And that will determine how much lithium, how much cobalt, and how much graphite we really need to, to have over the next 10 or 20 years. So this is why you're focused on silver right now because you feel there's more certainty as an investment vehicle. Uh, any predictions? I won't hold you to it as, about, as, far as, as far as the price of silver is concerned uh, over the course of the next 12 months? Uh, boy, predictions are hard. I, I, I really do think that in terms of supply and demand, and we see demand increasing and we see supply decreasing, actually. I think that it, $25 silver is not is not a, an outrageous forecast, and that would be that would that would bring the silver market back in in tune again. Doctor Barry, it's always a pleasure to see you and speak with you. You're looking well and you sound great. Thanks for joining me today in the program. Thanks, Alice, very much. Good to be with you. I've been speaking with Doctor Michael Barry. His website is discoveryinvesting.com. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Giannis Sitos, president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.V. Gold Source is a Canadian junior mining company producing gold in mining-friendly English-speaking Guyana, bordering the Caribbean and South America. Giannis, welcome back to the program. Thank you for the invitation, Alice. Thanks a lot. For listeners new to your company, please give us an overview of Gold Source Mines. Gold Source Mines, Inc. is a Canadian resources uh, junior company listed under the symbol GXS in Canada and GXSFF in the United States. We have moved to our main assets are in Guyana, especially the Eagle Mountain Gold Mine. Call it mine because, as you know, in 2016, we concluded construction in January. On budget and on time, we initiated about six months of commissioning period, which we concluded in mid-summer, as we announced. And now, effectively, we are in, uh, I would say, third month of operation. You just released news about your production results for Q3 of 2016. Let's talk about that. I would like to remind your listeners, and especially for people who for first time hear the Gold Source Mine story, that this is a mine in development that goes in progress for the next three years. What we are pioneering and we are very proud of is uh, our engineering team, a specialist of uh, starting up production with a very low capital upfront, and then over a period of three to four years, built up the mine through a set of expansions. So more capital in other words, is coming over the next three years to significantly increase the amount of throughput of, in other words, the amount of tonnes that we will be processing and therefore the amount of ounces that will be produced. But in this way, you de-risk the project as you go. It's different than just outlaying $150 million up front and starting a medium-sized mine in gold business where lots of things sometimes can go wrong from metallurgy to, you know, other kind of issues as you go and already you have laid down your investment. In our case, we we are taking a prudent approach uh, from a point of view that we outlay smaller amounts of capital and we build it up uh, then with time. This way we control much better our risks. Now coming back to what I said before, the plan on when I said commissioning and production in uh, June, July, it was to produce 1,000 tons 
per day on one shift in terms of throughput and expectation to produce about 1,500 to 2,000 ounces per 16 because it's a short year. Then next year, obviously, go with uh, bigger expansions in terms of introducing a night shift that we are facing, in, as we said today on our news release, in this quarter, in the Q4 of this year, 2016, and then deliver it as a full night shift by the conclusion of the first quarter of 2017. Subsequently to that, we want to introduce a lithium reactor and then build a copycat plant to double the amount of capacity, effectively targeting by 2018 about 4,000 tons a day and about 30 to 35,000 ounces per annum, and that's the capacity. So we are in the first baby steps, I would say. We haven't broken even yet. We are planning to break even, hopefully, before the end of this year, so in just a couple of months. And coming back to the news of today, yes, we indeed produced about 175 ounces in this last quarter, but I would like to say that was attributable mainly to September, because in August we had one month down by introducing a truck from coming from Canada and also making some improvements on our processing plant. You expect to be able to break even by the end of the year and by sometime in 2018, which is over a year away, you expect to generate between seven to ten million dollars of gross revenue per year. That's fairly substantial. You're certainly thrifty and not wasting any funds, continuously developing the mine. This makes you unique among many of the small miners in the space, doesn't it? We are not unique. I'm pretty sure there are more people like us out there, and we know that some people are following us and try to apply similar approach to other projects. Where we believe we are really good is in controlling our operating costs. So one thing is to produce gold. The other thing is obviously how much profit margin you are making on every gold ounce you produce. Obviously, as I said before, we don't break even yet because we don't have the amount of ounces, but we have managed to keep our operating costs very low as a totality in terms of Guyana cost and obviously Canada. Now, out of independent engineering reports that were done on Eagle Mountain, over the mine life of the soft rock saprolite project, which is about eight years, the operating cost will be about $500 or $490 to be more accurate, US dollars per ounce as cash cost in Guyana and about $630 per ounce when I include Canadian overheads, sustaining capital, and uh, GNA in, in everywhere, everything in Guyana. So this kind of cost leaves a significant profit margin over even the current gold prices, albeit that people think this uh, gold market is pretty bullish at the moment, and I do believe. The only parameter I don't control, I always say I control my operating costs and uh, the cost of our team in Guyana and in Canada, and therefore that's our target, to deliver ultimately the mine even at the bigger scale, but producing gold under $650 per ounce. You mentioned a mine life of eight years or so. What are you doing to step out or expand the resource over time? We've got about 5,000 hectares of land uh, that is all perspective. The mining activities at the moment take space around 250 hectares. So we've got quite a significant amount of land to explore as we go. And I would like to remind everybody that Eagle Mountain itself uh, is about 1 million ounces as compliant resource at about 1.45 grams per ton at 0.5 grams cut off. The deposit is open in three lateral directions and in depth. So I would like to say in 2013, when we stopped drilling, it 
was not a case of running out of oil. We ran out of money because of the kind of uh, difficulties that the markets went there at that time for any junior miner or explorer, put it this way. So we are drilling now mainly within the resource because of uh, great control on our pit number four. But in 2017, we will initiate a drilling program on the periphery of the deposit. Hopefully, we will expand the ounces. Now, the other key point here is, is that uh, at the moment, we are mining only the soft rock uh, material, but uh, at the end, when you pre-strip the surficial one-to-one strip ratio, effectively, surficial ore material, you will go into the hard rock mineralization. This is a completely outside these eight years. That is going to extend the mine life beyond the 11 years of this deposit. And at the moment, we haven't done any engineering studies on the hard rock potential, but we will do as the time comes, and we will not spend other people's money. We will spend our own free cash flow to do this exploration, which is very important for any shareholder or any investor down the line. We are pretty strong in the country. We have a great operating team, both on the management side, but also on the Guyanese side, tremendous tradesmen and workers that have experience from mining operations from other companies, and we feel we will deliver the mine, all the milestones as we promised them, on time and on budget. And I should mention that you're a member of a very competent management team with a proven track record that is successfully developing with your sister company, the Las Chispas Project in Sonora State, Mexico. I'm talking about Silvercrest Metals. Absolutely. We are very proud of that. The management team in Canada is obviously very experienced. They has discovered deposits, has uh, sold deposits, has sold companies, but most importantly, has delivered value, real value to shareholders. And what we try to do in Guyana is effectively something we haven't done before in that country, but the same management team has worked in Mexico, as you said, and the Silvercrest Mines has uh, incredible support ahead in the past and now in the new vehicle too. So it's a good, a realistic team, down-the-earth team. We don't spend too much money and we don't pay ourselves that high, yet it's just a decent team that is keen and experienced in developing projects and delivering value. Obviously, the time will come when the deposit will be significantly higher, bigger, and at that time, obviously, we will do different economics. But at this stage and for the next few years, this company is focused only in improving the quality of the recoveries from the gold, in increasing throughput, all that in an environment where we respect the environment and the social structure around our deposit. And obviously, we safety is number one. So whatever we have done up to now, we had zero accidents and zero lost time. And it's a great jurisdiction in South America. It's the only English-speaking country in South America. So effectively, it's in uh, uh, British Guyana, used to be called, is an ex-UK colony, independent, and this year celebrated its 50th year anniversary from independence. Secular democracy based on British law and British standards, which is very good for us as a Canadian company. Give an example, Alice, when I consolidate our books at the end of the year or when the auditors work to check our finances, the job is very simple because in Guyana, the standards or the accounting standards are exactly the same like in Canada. So it's a British system with significant influence from the United States. And I would like to remind people that last year, if they Google Exxon and Guyana, the biggest discovery of oil on earth happened offshore in Guyana, so by Exxon Mobil. So this has put completely new light into the future of the government's approach to the country, the extractive laws in terms of not only mining, but also oil 
oil and gas and definitely tremendous prospects for this beautiful country with very very nice people that are very supportive so more than 29% of the GDP of Guyana comes from the extractive industry so we are there to stay for a long time and uh, deliver value to local stakeholders and also all our shareholders. Giannis, thanks for another great conversation. I appreciate the update and thanks for joining me today on the program. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk and encourage your listeners to put the company there on their screen and check our news releases as we bring them every month. I've been speaking with Giannis Sitos, the president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as GXS and in the U.S. as GXSFF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Michael Raps, Vice President of Corporate Communications for Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Silvercrest Metals Las Chispas project has proven to be potentially prolific as of late with discoveries of possible Bonanza-grade silver equivalent resource in the Las Chispas and William Tell veins. Mike, welcome to the program. One of the questions that some of our listeners may have had a few months ago when you were releasing numbers on the Bonanza grades of the Las Chispas project is, are they continuous? Are the grades high all the way through? And according to a recent Silvercrest news release, they are. That's actually true. We have seen further continuity of the high grades at the Las Chispas project. Although the width might be narrow, you know, it's over one to five meters, they are potentially mineable thicknesses. So we are very encouraged to what we have seen over the last few weeks and we have completed phase one drilling and we're looking at starting phase two this fall. We've seen all the way through this year a substantial increase in share price compared to where we started in my mind last November and December. You've been able to deliver astounding results over the course of time with regard to resource potentially in the ground. We all know as well that this particular management team has had proven success in the past in this area and there's little reason to believe that they cannot deliver again. It's not always smart to speculate on these things but all of this is worth taking note of. If I was to look it up, when we hit our $4 high, I think we have increased over 2,000% year to date. And basically, you mentioned two of the reasons why it's definitely, you know, August 2nd, when we released our first batch of news of the uh, drill assays. And I haven't seen the market react so positively to good drill results as we have seen here on August 2nd. The grades were impressive. Bonanza grades, you called it just earlier. Secondly, reputation of the management in the marketplace is I believe one of the reasons why we have seen such an increase in share price because the old Silvercrest Mines management right, has always delivered on their promises and Eric Fear, who is currently the president and CEO of the company has said that his ultimate vision is to do it again and turn this into a producer and then you know listeners shouldn't forget that we also highly leveraged to the silver price and silver and gold have done unexpectedly well over the last six to eight months. So all of this combined basically led to that hike in the share price. Of course, the price of silver and gold can fluctuate, as is the case in recent days, Mike, but you factor that into potential production costs when it becomes time to do so. Much of this silver is easy to access. 
Historically speaking, there are 11.5 kilometers of underground workings on the Las Chispas project, and we have reopened and gained access to about 6 kilometers to date. So we have done a lot of work going into the underground, cleaning it out very systematically, taking channel samples from the footfall and the hanging wall, and drilling also basically will define those areas that are those high-grade pockets where we can go and extract a 100,000 ton bulk sample because if you remember when we talked about the underground drilling permit, we have basically applied for that. We should be receiving that any day now. And with that underground drilling permit, it will also include the permit to conduct a 100,000 ton bulk sample. And so all this past drilling that we have done, all this future drilling that we will do this fall, lasting into the new year, all of that will be used to define those high-grade areas. Since you have this infrastructure at Las Chispas, it's not extremely expensive to develop compared to other projects in the world. Yeah, I don't think so. I think having all this infrastructure, as you said, in place, I mean, first of all, how to access the property, that's always very important to the management of this company, is that you want to be close to good infrastructure such as the highway. From our door to the underground portal, it takes about 45 minutes drive, and it's on highway, and then once you turn off the highway, it's about six kilometers to the portal, so that's important. And then, yeah, like you said, you have all these underground workings, and you get all these drifts where you can just get into the underground from an infrastructure perspective, really favorable. How are you capitalized right now? We still have about three and a half million dollars cash in the bank, so we are definitely in a really good, strong position to start the phase two drilling with that cash, but the budget for that will be a little higher than the one that we did just recently, as we are looking to drill more meters than what we drilled in phase one, and potentially have more than just one drill rig on site, because the phase two drilling will include an underground drill rig and a surface drill rig. We have enough cash in bank to start off phase two drilling. Are you going into production eventually or is there a buyout strategy, a positive one, similar to what we saw with the previous incarnation, Silvercrest Mines? You never know really, Alice. You know, that's a question that only the future holds, but right now we don't have a for sale sign hanging by the door. Our strategy going forward is do it very systematically and based on the successes that we receive. Once we have completed phase two drilling, for example, we're going to compile all of the drill data and we'll initiate our maiden resource estimate. We expect that to be done in the first half of next year. Then you'll be looking at kicking off the bulk sample that I was talking earlier and you'll be starting to extract all this mineralized material from the underground and you just move on and move forward and you keep on developing this project. I think if you want to look at this from a timeline perspective, you'll probably be looking at easily three to five years before you would put that into production. There's a number of steps that you would have to do before you get into a production scenario. Recently, you put out news concerning the William Tell vein, an unmined vein, which means exactly that. It's never been mined. You did some samples there. What did you find? That is an extremely encouraging news release for, for us because what happened here in the past is these historic miners, it appears that they have mined on strike until they hit a fault. And that cross-cutting fault really displaced the, the vein. And so these miners just didn't continue any further and investigate it any further. So they went back to mine the Las Chispas vein. And as you know, Las Chispas has never been drill tested before. And so when we start putting some drill 
vehicles into the area, it intercepted the unmined portion of the William Tell vein, and that is very encouraging to us. That basically means there's a lot of unmined material sitting there, and what Phase 2 drilling will also do is we will go ahead and drill test those southern extension of the William Tell vein to see how long the strike lengths will be. That was a very encouraging find for us. According to what I've seen in this news release, you found potential grades of greater than 400 grams per ton. This is incredibly significant. This is a major, major project potentially for Silvercrest. It is. It definitely is. You know, we have looked at this quite intensively and we said to ourselves that everything over 150 grams per ton silver equivalent would be economic in our view. Uh, obviously, a 43101 would all, you know, confirm that. But if we see those kind of grades, the 300, 400 grams per ton silver equivalent, yes, they have dropped off to the Bonanza type grades that we have put out August 2nd, but it still shows us some very economic grades that are coming forth from all these veins. And we are very encouraged. And keep in mind that when we drilled Las Chispas and the William Tell vein, we only drilled that first because we had A, access to the underground there, and B, we received the surface drilling permit easier and quicker than the underground. Because what the underground drilling permit will give us is that we now can go ahead and drill the Bobby Canora target, which holds the Bobby Canora vein. And that was the biggest producer, historically speaking, when they mined there between 1880 and 1930. Mike, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program. I look forward to more news in the very near future. Thanks again, Alice. It was great talking to you. I've been speaking with Michael Rapsch, Vice President of Corporate Communications for Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.